Welcome and thanks for listening to the Community Christian Church Podcast. To learn more about Community Christian Church, visit us online at cccsterling.org. Today's message comes from Pastor Tony Ria. Good morning. And welcome to Community Christian Church. As Pastor Chris has already said, it's great to have you with us. How are you feeling this morning? Enjoying the summer so far? It's great. It's good to see you. It really is. Good to have you with us as well. Today is the second Sunday in July. And for those of you who've been around Community Christian Church for any length of time, and you're the kind of church member that pays attention to things, then you're probably asking yourself the question, what is Pastor Tony doing in the pulpit? <laughs> and you would ask yourself that question because for the past several years now, the past four or five years, I've taken July off from speaking. In case you haven't noticed, I'm getting older. <laughs> A lot older, and I feel older. And the mid-year break helps me to regroup and stay spiritually sharp and at my best throughout the year. In addition to that, another reason why I'm able to take a month-long speaking sabbatical is because here at our church, we have the absolute best teaching team on the planet. And I mean that. I mean that with all my heart. We have people here who can preach the Word of God. And when they deliver the Word, when they dispense it, it moves right to our hearts. And last Sunday, I don't know about you, but I was inspired with the message that Tyler had to give about freedom and our hope in Christ. You know, there's not a lot of hope floating around right now. A lot of despair, a lot of hopelessness. Don't even know who to believe or what to think. And Tyler did a tremendous job bringing us back to the fact that God is our hope through Jesus Christ. And I left the service last Sunday flying high. And this month we're also going to have Pastor Chris speaking with us and Abdu Murray. And I know that the word that the Lord has laid upon their hearts will minister to you. It will bless you. And so we have a pretty good lineup scheduled for the month of July. And because it's 2020, a year like no other, I decided to get in on the action and the fun and take a turn this month. And so, uh, thank you. It's good to be here. It was sometime during the final year of Jesus' earthly ministry, his public ministry, oftentimes referred to as the year of opposition, when the religious leaders really started to hound him. And please don't misunderstand, they were on his case from day one, always looking over his shoulder, always criticizing him, continually attempting to discredit him and intimidate him. But after he gained dramatic popularity among the people and the multitudes began to follow him from place to place and they hung on every word that he had to say, and when that started to happen, that's when the scribes and the Pharisees became overly agitated with Jesus. It's the Gospel of John that tells us that following the miracle that Jesus had when he raised Lazarus from the dead, countless more people began to believe in Jesus. And they left the synagogues and began to follow Jesus. And that's when the Pharisees, we're told, began to conspire against Jesus and actually meet together to find a way to put him to death. Here's what it says in John chapter 11 and verse 53. From that day on, and this is the day after 
Lazarus was raised from the dead, from that day on, they, the religious leaders, plotted to take his life. Can you imagine that? I mean, think about that for a moment. Not just angry and upset with Jesus, not just envious and jealous over the fact that he was gaining a lot of attention and the people were really uh, flocking to hear him, but actually having enough hate in their hearts to meet together and to discuss ways and opportunities to kill him. That's our religious leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees. They plotted, following the resurrection of Lazarus, they planned to take his life. And that was the precise frame of mind the religious leaders were in when they approached Jesus, recorded in Matthew chapter 22. And that's what we're going to be talking about this morning, some of the verses there in Matthew 22. I, I want you to know the mindset of the Pharisees and the religious leaders when they approached Jesus. They had this in their minds to eliminate him, silence him, and put him to death. Matthew chapter 22 and verse 15 says, Then the Pharisees went out and laid plans to trap him in his words. The King James Version says they took counsel how they might entangle him in his talk. Friends, this was a very calculated and deliberate conspiracy and attack upon the ministry of Jesus. I'm talking about a planned and premeditated evil to get Jesus to slip up and say something that they could use in their attempt to build a case against him. And now I'm talking about a case worthy of death. And so they weren't just asking Jesus off the top of their heads, questions off the top of their heads. It wasn't like they, they saw Jesus and say, hey, uh, we got a few questions for you. No, what they had done was meet for hours and hours and come up with a presentation, the perfect dialogue, the right angle to approach Jesus in hopes that he would say something wrong and catch him in a verbal ambush. But how many know Jesus was ready for them? He was always ready because he spent time with the Father. He spent time in prayer. He was spiritually sharp and in the zone. And he knew exactly what they had on their minds to do. He was well aware of the strategy that they were using. And he basically said to them, bring it on. And that's what they did. In Matthew chapter 22, in the opening verses there, the religious leaders hit Jesus with two extremely controversial matters. The first one had to do with paying taxes to Caesar. And if you want to rile people up, just talk a little bit about money. That'll do it every time. The second issue was all about resurrection from the dead and what's going to happen in the hereafter. And Jesus responded to both of these questions and both of these issues in a tremendous way. In fact, he aced the test. And the Bible says after he had responded, the people were astonished. Say that word. Astonished. They were astonished at his answers. They were blown away at how he was able to dialogue with the religious leaders. And that's when they decided to bring out the big guns. And I'm talking about a high-profile attorney, a Jeffrey Figer type, who would want 
Jesus, and this was, his, this was his question, he wanted Jesus to identify the greatest command, the greatest instruction that God had ever passed along to us through Moses. And keep in mind when he asked that question, when he asked Jesus to name just one commandment, the people of God were following 613 laws and commands, plus additional traditions and ideas that the Pharisees were making them adhere to as well. 613 laws and commands, and this big shot uh, lawyer wants Jesus to boil that all down to just one superior law. How many of you know this was pretty much a no-win situation for Jesus, no matter how he answered this particular question? But once again, he handled it. And he didn't skip a beat. And Jesus said, you want to know what the greatest command is that God ever gave to us? Is that what you really want to know? Is that the desire of your heart? It's love. That's right, it's love. Matthew chapter 22, verses 37 through 40. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. Can I ask you again, what, what's the greatest commandment, according to Jesus, that God ever gave to us? Love. Love the Lord with all your heart. But don't stop there, Jesus said. There's a second part. There's a part B or a part two. It's like the first, just as important as the first. Love your neighbor as yourself. And then Jesus made this incredible statement. And we, we, we sometimes just brush over it. All the law and all the commands, all 613 that they were following at that time, hang on these two commandments. In other words, Jesus basically said by just obeying these two, loving God and loving people, in essence, you are fulfilling and keeping the other 611. You should have been astonished by that. Not my words, his words. And friends, over the past 28 years, we have established Community Christian Church on this very foundation. And we have endeavored to do our best to build our mission and our ministry on the Matthew 22 teaching. And again, it's a two-fold assignment. It's a two-fold commandment. To love God with all of your heart and to love your neighbor as yourself. And they are equally important. Why? Because Jesus said so. Again, it's not my opinion. We just read it. A group of religious leaders came together. They asked Jesus life and death questions. At the top of the list, they sent this lawyer to Jesus to say, okay, what's the greatest commandment? Jesus said it's to love, to love God and to love one another. Do you think this is important? Raise your hand if you think it's important. It's important. This is at the top of the list. Now, many, many people think and I know this because I have conversations with people. I read about what people think. People think that if I love God and I surrender my heart to Christ and I trust him and I, 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 I live my life according to the commandments that God has given to me, isn't that enough? 
Isn't that enough? It's not enough. Because in Matthew chapter 22, Jesus said it wasn't enough. And just to be crystal clear, it's enough for salvation. I mean, let's cover that. Let's not get confused about that. Loving God, surrendering your heart to Jesus, believing that he died on the cross for our sins, went to the tomb but was raised from the dead, is now seated at the right hand of the Father, and putting your trust in the gospel message, that will lead you to salvation. We all agree? But that's not the end goal. Salvation is the starting point. It puts you right there at the starting gate. And again, you will want salvation. You will want to make sure that you are saved. You'll want your name written in the Lamb's book of life. And you will want to secure the promise of eternal life in heaven as opposed to the alternative. And there's really only two choices. But in addition to all that, in addition to securing your salvation, the spiritual end goal is to be made in the image and likeness of God. It's to have the heart of God. And now I'm talking about walking around here on earth with a Matthew 22 loving and merciful heart that has been changed and transformed by the power of God's grace. That's the objective. That's the goal. That should be the number one desire of every believer. Not just salvation. Not just bowing your knee at the cross, as important as that is, and you need to do that at some point in your life. But it's allowing the grace of God to take your human heart and transform it into a merciful, loving heart where you love the Lord and serve the Lord with every ounce of strength that you have and you reach out in love towards your neighbor. Friend, that's, that's what we should be doing. That should be our desire. Now, there's a good brother who attends Community Christian Church. He's been coming here, attending our church for forever, really, and he's been saved longer than that. And he has a big heart for God. I mean, this is a really good brother. I mean, he's devoted to helping people. He cares about people. And the Lord has laid upon his heart the incarcerated. And let's just be honest. Uh, sharing Jesus in a jail is not the most desirable ministry that there is. And very few of us jump at the occasion to do that. But this particular brother thrives there. And he's been involved in a prison and jail ministry for a long, long time. Well, uh, he told me on one occasion when he was preaching to some inmates, toward the end of his service, the Lord impressed upon him to ask the guys whether or not they were saved. And he, he was bold. He said, how many of you uh, have made a commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ? How many of you would say that you are recipients of God's salvation? And to his surprise, about 95% of the people in the room raised their hand, almost 100%. So he asked him a second question. How many of you guys who, who, who are here would say that you love God with all of your heart? That you really have a desire to serve the Lord and to honor God with your life? How many, how many of you say you love God? And again, he was surprised because the crowd raised their hand, almost 100%. And it was the kind of thing where he witnessed it to be true. Like they were being sincere. And they really believed that they loved God and that they were saved. 
And as he stood there, dazed and confused for just a moment, that's when the Spirit of the Lord spoke to his heart and told him, these men, the men that you're preaching to, they have gotten the Matthew 22, 37 verse right, but they have failed with the Matthew 27, 39 verse. They got the first half of the commandment right, but they didn't get the second half of the commandment. And that's the reason why most of them were in jail. They violated Matthew 22, 39. And so here they were, admittedly loving God with all their hearts, saved by the power of God's grace and confined to a prison cell. Think about that. Saved and yet in prison. You know what that tells me? It tells me that the same kind of thing could happen to you and me. That is very possible. And without violating someone's rights to the point of criminal prosecution, we too can miss the Matthew 22 mark. We can, as believers, come up short and only get it half right. Do you know, it's easy as we walk with the Lord to gravitate to the first part of the passage that Jesus gave to us in Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven, and just say, Lord, I want to love you. I want to serve you. I'm committed to that. It's, sometimes it's easy to gravitate there. It's a little bit harder to get the second half of it right. Because when it comes to loving our neighbors, what we have a tendency to do is pick and choose who we want to embrace and who we want to love and who we want to show kindness to. And for clarification's sake, if you want to take this to the next level and try to determine who Jesus was talking about when he used the term neighbor, who he was describing, if that's your desire, if that would be your obvious next question, who's my neighbor, then I want you to know you're in good company. Because when Jesus gave this little teaching, that's precisely what somebody said to him. Well, who's my neighbor? Who are you talking about? Do you remember Jesus' response? The parable of the Good Samaritan. A parable that we all know. It's a well-known teaching. In fact, even the world knows it. And they love to talk about the Good Samaritan. In the parable of the Good Samaritan, Jesus describes neighbor as everyone. Everyone. All people. Especially people in need. In fact, that was the emphasis. People who are in need, any kind of a need, a physical need, a spiritual, relational, social, financial. Jesus was addressing people in need when he was talking about neighbor. And so tell me again, according to the words of Jesus in Matthew twenty-two thirty-nine, what do we do with people like this? What do we do with these kinds of needful neighbors? Love them. Good. We love them. That's the command. Now, during six or seven months out of the year, depending on the weather, Teresa and I like to take little walks in our subdivision. Uh, this is something that we've been doing for a long time. And for the most part, we walk the same path. It's the same route. I know it's boring, but we kind of you know, follow the same path. Sometimes we have a little bit more time and we walk for an hour. Sometimes it's not quite that long. Uh, but we, we walk this path in our neighborhood, our subdivision. And we get to know some of the neighbors. The neighbors get to know us. 
And I found out, and I feel it when I'm walking, that some of the neighbors are watching me and watching us like a hawk. And I'm pretty much uh, convinced that they talk about us behind our backs. <laughs> because that's basically what neighbors do. Case in point, a couple of weeks ago when the kids and the grandkids were here, uh, Teresa and I got involved in a little scavenger hunt uh, activity with the kids, and we kind of turned it into a little competition. Therese took Giovanni, I took Audrey, and we walked through the neighborhood taking pictures with our cell phones of items that were on the scavenger hunt list. Well, a couple of streets over, uh, there's a neighbor there. I had never had a conversation with this neighbor. I, I've seen him. I, I probably waved to him, said hello, but we've never talked. He saw me with Audrey, and he said, you know, my wife and I, we see you walking with your wife all the time, but we didn't know you had any kids. Who takes care of the kids when you're walking? And the manner in which he said that, he gave me the impression that he thought I wasn't a very good parent. <laughs> like maybe I spent a little bit too much time walking and working out and less parenting time than I should. I was tempted to say, mind your own business, nosy neighbor. <laughs> but Audrey was there. No, I didn't want to expose her to that. So I said, you know, these are, this is not my daughter, this is my granddaughter, but thank you for the compliment. I said, they're my kid, my grandkids visiting from out of state. They're staying with us for a couple of days. And he said to me, okay, great, I'll, t I'll tell my wife. <laughs> it's what we do. We talk about our neighbors. And over the past 20 years, uh, that's how long we've lived, lived in our home in Macomb, we have circled that block countless times watch the same people, seen the same people. And here's what I've discovered. There are typically five kinds of people, five different groups of neighbors living in your subdivision. Every subdivision, every neighborhood, every community, every living space, five different groups. And as I describe these five different groups to you, uh, see if you can recognize any of them or identify with one maybe. And please don't be offended, okay? Just relax a little bit because the names, the titles, and the descriptions that I have chosen for you, they're designed purposely to be a little on the humorous side. All right, are you ready? Five different types of neighbors. Number one, there's the busybody. Number two, the recluse, the sculptor, the extravagant, and the abnormal. All right, one more time. The busybody, the recluse, the sculptor, the extravagant, and the abnormal. Five different types of fascinating characters living in all of our neighborhoods. Every uh, subdivision in every American city. Let's take a quick look at these one at a time. First, the busybody. Talked about him just a few moments ago. These are the people who have a way of knowing private details about everyone on the street, including you. All day long, all they do is look and listen. That's all they do. They set up chairs in front of their house. They don't go in the backyard. They're in the driveway, out front, all day long, all night long. They sit there and continually scan the neighborhood for fresh intel. <laughs> and if you have an occasion to chat with them or to hold a conversation with them or come in contact with them in any way, be very careful. Because every question is meticulously crafted and designed 
to gather more dirt for further conversation, later conversation. And when you see a smile on their face, beware. It's just a facade. They're, do, they're digging for more material. You know anybody like that? Of course you do. They're everywhere. All right, number two, the recluse. These are people who you know live in your neighborhood, but you never see them, ever. They sneak in and out of their house like a chameleon. And if by chance you catch a glimpse of them, and God forbid you say hello, they just stare back at you, motionless, indifferent. They don't wave. They don't say hello. They don't interact with you at all. In fact, it almost appears as though they have an aversion to people, especially children. And the recluse would never be caught dead passing out candy on Halloween. Are you kidding me? Lights out, curtains drawn, no signs of life whatsoever in October. And when you drive by their house, you get that eerie feeling. Like you know someone lives there, but who? Who are they? Number three, the sculptor. This is the guy or the gal who spends every waking moment meticulously manicuring their lawn and their landscaping beds. And they are impeccable. Not a blade of grass, a bush branch, a tree leaf, or flower petal escapes their careful attention. They walk around with pruning shears in their back pockets and they live out the majority of their evenings admiring their handiwork, just checking out everything. And let's be honest, their, their lawns look amazing, like something out of an English garden magazine. But the downside is living next to them, sharing a property line with that kind of agricultural perfection. And look out, whenever you get involved in a gardening project of your own, the sculptor is Johnny on the spot when it comes to giving you unsolicited lawn advice, telling you what to do. All right, number four, the extravagant. Are you, are you making any connections here? All right, the extravagant. Another name for this particular neighbor is the millionaire next door. And before you have a chance to meet them or get to know their names, you come face to face with their expensive cars, their fancy boats, and their luxurious homes. They always have the latest and greatest toys and uh, high-definition TVs. I mean, one neighbor I know spent $20,000 on a TV. I mean, the best that money can buy. The extravagant is forever involved in massive home improvement projects. Contractor trucks are parked in their driveways nonstop. And oftentimes, the stuff they throw out in the trash, and they always have a ton of trash, is better than what we have in our living rooms. <laughs> and as kind-hearted and generous as the extravagant might be, sometimes they're just not all that sensitive to people who have a whole lot less than they do. So there's the busybody, the recluse, the sculptor, the extravagant, and finally, number five, the abnormal. Now, last week, when I finished putting this message together, I bounced all these titles off of Therese, trying to get her feedback, and she said with that number five, don't use the word abnormal. Say eccentric. So they're abnormal, eccentric, and downright weird. 
These are the people that have all kinds of strange statues and ornaments in their landscaping beds. I walk by the neighborhood, I see gnomes and sea creatures that freak me out. I think to myself, why in the world would anybody put something like that in their front yard or in their backyard? It's wacky. It's unattractive, and it needs to go. I mean, the other day we were walking, uh, and another couple was walking, coming toward us, and as they passed us, they were ripping on something their neighbor had just done. Uh, you know, like it's our business. Now, typically, the abnormal or the eccentric, they don't cause any trouble in the neighborhood. They have a cheerful, jolly vibe and disposition. But check out the colors they use to paint their trim and their garage doors. It's unsightly. I mean, hard to look at. Like we should care about their color palette preference. Like that's any of our concern. Now what's the point in all this? Why take a chunk of time during our service, during this message, to talk about the habits and the hang-ups of neighbors? Why would we do something like that? Because we're all different. We all have different likes and dislikes. Contrasting opinions and personalities. Oftentimes polar opposites, living, breathing, and existing in the same community. And in Matthew chapter 22, Jesus said, we emulate his fulfillment of the law and the prophets, all 613 of them. We fulfill it ourselves when we learn how to love and accept, show kindness to, and live peaceably with our neighbors, including people from a different culture, people who look different than we do, people who act differently, those who don't wear the same style of clothing that we do or eat the, like the same foods that we eat. And on the authority of God's word, getting this one right that I'm talking to you about today is as critical as loving God with all of our hearts. I wish that I could communicate to you this past week how I have felt when talking and praying about these few verses. That in response to this incredible verbal test that the, lawyer, that the religious leaders presented to Jesus, he gave a rather simplistic answer to a very deep question. What's the greatest commandment? What's the most important to God? Twofold. Love God with a whole heart. Love your neighbor as yourself. And they're equally as important. And I would think to a person, we would all agree, all agree that we could do a little bit better with Matthew 22b, the second part of it. In fact, going forward here in our nation and in our world, this to me... I think will prove to be one of the greatest challenges we face. How to get along with each other. A couple of verses and then we'll close up. Romans chapter 12 verses 10 through 18. Be devoted to one another in love. Not just devoted. Devoted in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal. But keep your spiritual fervor, serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. See, that's good neighboring. 
Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Verse 18, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. In other words, if we all did our part, if we all put forth a concerted effort and did the necessary things to change unhealthy attitudes and behavior, eventually we could get there. Paul said, if it is possible, as far as depends on you, live at peace with everyone. And this whole concept of good neighboring begins with me. It starts with me. Not with the busybody or the recluse or the sculptor or the extravagant or the eccentric. It's not like they have to change. It starts with me. It's me adjusting my mindset and my attitude and my behavior and doing all the things that Paul instructs us to do. And his words sound so much like the message of Jesus. One last passage and then we'll close in prayer. Ephesians chapter 4 verses 2 and 3. Be completely humble. How humble? We've got to work at this one. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love, not just tolerating each other. Paul said, loving one another, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. First and greatest commandment, love the Lord with all your heart. Second, like the first, love your neighbor as yourself. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Father, we take just a couple of moments here now during this very important time to appropriate what the Spirit of God is saying to me right now. We thank you, Lord, for being able to come into your house and into your presence. We sang about that all morning. That was the focus of our worship time. It's in your house, Lord. What a privilege to gather together in the house of God, to sense your presence. And for those who are sensing their presence or wherever they might be, sensing your presence, what a privilege it is, Lord. And you're speaking a word to your people, Lord. You're getting our attention. Thank you, Lord, for how you have shown your faithfulness to us over the past several months, how you've blessed us, how you've protected us. But, Lord, you're all, all, also calling us to our knees. You're asking for there to be a shift in the way that we think, in the way that we act and we behave. And during the Sermon on the Mount, probably... Uh, undoubtedly the best sermon ever preached in the whole wide world Jesus said blessed are the peacemakers for they shall become the children of God Lord that's our desire to be your children help us to know how to be a peacemaker how to listen carefully to others how to reach out how to be available how to do all the things that we're instructed to do in your word Lord, let us fill ourselves up with your word, not our own thoughts, not our own opinions, but with your word. Lord, you are calling your church to lead the way. This is something that we believe like never before. Lord, this is a critical time, not only for the world, but for the church. And I thank you, Lord. I thank you for those who are examining their hearts. They're taking a step towards you. Lord, we want 
to be instruments of the gospel message that can affect change in our world. And Lord, what a privilege, what an honor to be a part of a generation that can maybe right some wrongs for the first time. Help us, Lord, to be world changers. Help us to take hold of the gospel message and to just believe the simple truth and the simple words that Jesus spoke to us. Simple but yet powerful. Lord, I pray for our nation. I pray for our communities and our neighborhood. I ask, Lord, as so many others have, we call, Lord, the violence to come to an end. We call, Lord, for people to turn to you. Lord, we need renewal and revival like never before. Revival starts in the church, starts with me. I pray, Lord God, that I can respond, that we can respond to the voice of the Spirit. Let us not quickly get back to life as we once knew it, back to normal. Lord, I pray that there would be a new normal. And Matthew 22, verses 37 through 40 would play a huge part in our new normal. We thank you, Lord. We thank you for the desire on the part of your people to know you and to respond to you accordingly. And we pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, we're not going to have a closing song, but instead I'm going to give you a homework assignment. And I'm going to give you the whole summer to do it. All right, so what do you got? Six or seven weeks to carry out this homework assignment. What I'm going to ask you to do is to involve yourself in one act of kindness to one of your neighbors. And of course, I'm not going to ask you to have that expression of kindness to a neighbor that you love or a neighbor who loves you and always gives you their leftover tomatoes during you know, the harvest season. You know, you know, not that neighbor. All right, if you do this uh, to a neighbor that you have no problem with, then you're probably going to get a C- minus on this homework assignment. And I'm not grading it. The Lord is going to be grading it. But if you reach out to one of those troublesome neighbors, you know, one maybe that I describe, abnormal, then you're going to get your A. Okay? So do that. Prayerfully consider it. Take it seriously. Let's start to walk in this whole idea of reaching out showing kindness and loving the people around us, okay? All right, God bless you. Have a great day. Thanks again for listening to the Community Christian Church Podcast. For more messages like this and other resources, visit us online at cccsterling.org.